0: By the way, before you young people are dismissed to your Sunday school, I heard that Tim is another year older and, Lord willing, another year wiser. Tim, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, God bless you. Happy birthday to you. Now you can go to your class <laughs> and thank you for serving our young people there in teen Sunday school. We met up with them uh they They went out on a teen outing yesterday going uh miniature golfing and uh we got there. Was wind in the? Uh, there was uh, a little birdie that told us that they were over at the creamery. So uh, uh, the uh, Reardon family had to go uh, crash the party over there. But uh, it was a sweet party. I invite you to join me in uh, Galatians five, where we left off last week. We never have enough time as we study the Word of God together. Uh, I used to frequently make apologies for uh, um, clocks, but you know, timing is just a a fact of life and this is part of God's providential provision. And uh, all we got a chance to look at last week was the, the bad news in Galatians 5 what the flesh is capable of. And these, this catalog of fifteen sins that Paul exposed us to is, number one, it's all that unbelievers understand and experience. Those that practice such sins will not see the kingdom of God. And yet, it's also a catalog of sins that uh, believers can be guilty of committing, though they don't practice it as a way of life. It is broken with repentance and turning from and uh, seeking God's forgiveness. Let's look at uh, Galatians 5, beginning in verse uh, 16. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes to us, And He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things, there's His operative word for this passage, those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And against the bleak backdrop of the negative presentation of the works of the flesh. In contrast to that, we have the beginning in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, in this passage of Scripture, Paul addresses the doctrine of progressive sanctification, the Christian life, living for Christ, and he gives us a contrast of Two different ways of life those that are ungodly and those that have been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Spirit. As I was thinking through this uh, passage, I reflected upon uh, that great literary genius of John Bunyan. Remember, in Pilgrim's Progress, if you have read, if you haven't read it, uh, you've you really missed uh, missed the boat. I'd encourage you to to read it, or, or I just got a copy of a, an audio edition of it to to listen to. But in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes Interpreter's House, which Pilgrim entered during the course of his journey to the Celestial City, and this is the story of or, or a picture of what the Christian life would look like. The parlor of the house was completely covered with dust. And when a man took a broom and started to sweep, he and the others in the room began to choke from the great clouds of dust that were stirred up. Does that conjure up some vivid imagery for you as the Spirit of God sweeps the house of your life? And and as you look at the law of God that exposes the heinousness of your sin, and also exposes the the sin uh, uh, the uh, the thorn crowned brow of the savior who who atoned for your sin. And well, in this picture that Bunyan gives, he says the more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became. Then interpreter ordered a maid to sprinkle the room with water, with which the dust was quickly washed away. Interpreter explained to Pilgrim that the parlor represented the heart of an unsaved man, that the dust was original sin, the man with the broom was the law, and the maid with the water was the gospel. His point was that all the law can do with sin, even as the text of Scripture tells us here in Galatians 5, is stirred up. The law was our tutor. It exposed us to our sin stirs it up. Only the gospel of Christ can wash it away. I don't think that we're going to have time today. We'll probably have to continue into next week as we look at the doctrine of, of sanctification to try to draw some more applicational points in our, in our lives and in our, in our thinking. There's a lot of banter that goes, along, goes around today about uh, different means of sanctification and how the gospel relates to it, uh, uh, gospel-centered living or cross-centered living and, uh, and what that means and what that looks like. But as Paul addresses sanctification in Galatians 5, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. So, to simplify what he says, we started looking at four realities about victory over sin as we submit to the Holy Spirit. The first point we looked at last week in verses 16 through 18 was promised victory over sin. And that's a great place to begin. When you and I as Christians live with this war mentality and this tension that we find Paul himself living in in Romans 7 that what I want to do What did he say? I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that I end up doing. And that's our Christian experience in a nutshell. The struggle, two warring forces that Paul addresses in Galatians 5. And so, it's great to start off with promise. Promise by God for freedom to live and to love as He intends us to do. And so this promise is that as you walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So we are at war, and yet we're promised victory. We go on in verses 19 through 21 with the second point, imperiled victory over sin, those that are only in the flesh, that have never been born again by the Spirit of God, never experienced regeneration, all that they can experience is the works of that unredeemed flesh. And so, Paul catalogs 15 representative items uh, I'd mentioned last week that uh, when when Paul says uh, in verse number 21 and things like these, that's Paul's shorthand for saying etc. etc. This is just an example. These 15 examples of the works of the flesh, and after promising victory and addressing imperiled victory of those that cannot please God. Notice the glorious contrast that he gets into in verses 22 and 23, this third point of our text, empowered for victory over sin. Something that only those that have experienced the new birth, because they've been baptized by the Spirit into Christ, Are capable of the fruit of the Spirit. This is fruit of redemption. This is not mere morality of those who seek to clean up their act. This is proof of regeneration. Talk about fada for assurance of salvation. When we when we do, when we obey the biblical imperatives to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith, that Paul says to the Corinthians. Or we do what Peter says, to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Because when you're wondering and and I know I'm not preaching to the choir here, I know that you've done exactly what I have done in times past, where you're questioning, well, am I a Christian or am I not? That was a really scary message about the eternal state of man, and I want to make sure I get in. I don't want to be part of the deceived in Matthew 7 who are involved in religion and yet are not born again. I want to be assured that I'm a kingdom kid. There is nothing more important in this life to nail down. uh, Why does John write his gospel account that you might believe in Christ? Why does He write His first epistle that you might know that you've believed? What good is getting something if you don't know you've got it? What good is it to uh, not know, uh, you know, and, as, and as you look at your life, is there anything that can be explained if you take away the Holy Spirit? Because you take away the Holy Spirit, all you're left with is the works of the flesh. But when we look at fruit of the Spirit, these are manifestation of the Spirit taking up residence in a life. One who is in vital communion with Christ, to put it in John's terminology, John 15, 1 through 8. This is the life of Christ lived out in a believer. And so Paul gives nine characteristic attitudes, making up one fruit uh, matter of fact, uh, I, I say one fruit because when he says that the fruit of the spirit, he doesn't say fruits. This is singular, one fruit. Uh, helping us make the connection that they're inextricably linked. So, Christian, think about what part in your life maybe maybe these uh, these individual facets of the one fruit of the spirit is not as abundant in your life as it should be. Well, we learn from that so that we apply ourselves to sanctification. So, think about what part needs to be more consistently manifest by the gift of His Spirit working through spiritual disciplines. Notice this first triad, these, these first three angles of the fruit of the Spirit and their habits of mind. These are habits of mind that ought to be uh, uh, characteristic of a believer. Love, joy, peace. Love is listed first, possibly as a foundational virtue of all the following graces. We are told by the Apostle Paul elsewhere that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. This agape love, this selfless love of choice refers not to an emotional affection or physical attraction or familial bond. It is sacrificial service of others demonstrated in commitment and respect and affection. When God chose to manifest or demonstrate His love toward us, Romans 5.8, how do you, when did He do it? When we were sinners, not very lovable. That is the love of choice. That is the agape love of God who loves rebels, those that break His law. And this love of God, Romans 5, 8, that has been demonstrated to us and shed abroad in our hearts is the same love that helps us be assured that we're in His family, that we practice the same kind of love that God practices. For instance, if you wanted to jot down in your notes or in your thinking a cross-reference of 1 John 3, John takes us through a, a whole list of tests of saving faith in 1 John. And one of those things that we test ourselves to see, okay, is there proof of the Spirit working in my life that I can't take credit for in the flesh? Is there love for the brethren? That's 1 John three sixteen and 17. This is a test of saving faith. In uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17... He says, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, that is, when He redeemed you and expressed love for you, it's shown that you've partaken of that when you lay down your life for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in... That's a great question. Great question. Where's the love? There is the love factor. There is this unnatural capacity to love like we didn't have before we met the Master. And though it is something that, is, that needs to grow in the Christian's life. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be pointed out when we're not loving. It needs to be manifested. But uh, this is something that the Spirit does in our lives to prove that He's taken up residence. He produces love. He produces joy. Joy is happiness rooted in divine promises and, and the spiritual reality of God's absolute sovereignty. What is, what is one of the believer's most favoritist verses that God's in charge and God is in control? Romans 8. What? 28. Better memorize it and better live in light of that verse every day of our lives that He works all things together for good. The day that I was dethroned as the god of my own life and Christ was enthroned in my life as my lord and my master. This new understanding, this this joy that I didn't have. You know, this this is a an a, a, an absolute knowledge of the absolute sovereignty of God, not based on circumstances. This is a gift from God, not something that an unbeliever… An unbeliever cannot experience joy. They can experience happiness. if, If things are going well, they'll be happy. They don't have joy. This is a worshipful, thankful recognition of divine favor. God's been good to me. I love, years ago, I, I was introduced to Warren Wiersbe's uh, definition of, of joy, and uh, Wiersbe's a wordsmith, if you've ever read much of Warren Wiersbe, and he, he, he says, this is joy. Joy is the flag flying high on the castle of your heart when the king's in residence. You got the king, you got joy. If the king's in your life, you got everything. Fruit of the Spirit's working in the life produces love. It produces joy. It produces peace. Inner calm overflowing from our saving relationship with Christ. Insert in your thinking Philippians 4. Be anxious for what? How much can we be anxious for and get away with it biblically? This much? Be anxious for nothing. Instead, Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. So, there there is no peace without prayer. And so, when we when we came to faith in Christ, we became we we began this journey of of uh, communion with God, where we pray to Him, and He floods our soul with this this peace. No. No prayer, no peace. Don't worry. Instead, pray. This inner calm of being rightly related to the God of the universe because we're related salvifically. We're on our way to heaven. Our sins have been atoned for. There is love, joy, peace, and this second triad is reaching out to others. This is how it's manifest. He says, the Spirit works in your life in producing patience. Now, you might look at your life and you inspect your own personal life and you say, need a lot of work here. Uh, This is a long suffering endurance of injuries inflicted by others. You know you expect to be beat up by the world. You come to Christ, you come to the household of faith, you don 't expect to be beat up in the church, but it does happen. We are still saved sinners. We are the company of the redeemed who need to exhibit patience because there are irritating. Just not irritating situations, but irritating people isn 't there Prickly people, uh, but you know this word patience doesn 't entertain the thoughts of retaliation in Ephesians four Paul uses this uh, about how that this is part of our worthy walk, part of our worthy walk that we exhibit a life of of patience. Now there might need to be growth here. Uh, if if you're a husband or a wife, how are you doing manifesting this to your unbelieving spouse for the glory of Christ and the witness of the gospel? This time for growth. How about parent? We got some parents here. Uh, parent, how how consistent are you with your? unsaved children as you parent them with the gospel. Boy, this is a... You know, when we, when we see that, that uh, patience is a fruit of the Spirit, this is a constant reminder, if you trip up here, of the need for repentance. God, forgive me. Son, daughter, would you, would you forgive me? This is not exhibiting fruit of who I am in Christ. This is a great teaching opportunity when you, when you blow this one. How about uh, kindness? A tender concern for others. Isn't it great to be part of the household of faith where when when life is hard through the week you can go to experience some kindness of the brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a tender concern that you don't get with the world. It's a, it's a desire to treat others gently as the Lord Himself deals with all believers. You study, like we're going through the Gospel of Matthew on, uh, on Sunday mornings typically. As we spend time at the feet of Christ, learning from Him as His disciples, we see kindness exhibited. You look at how He treats the downcast of society, how He treats the unclean, how He treats women, how He treats children. We, we see manifest what is to look like in our life. Kindness. You know, study some more in, uh, in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to Me, all ye that weary and are heavy you know, that burden, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. That's the kind of Compassion and kindness of the Lord. You know, since since God is kind towards sinners, we're going to look at God's kindness in uh, the morning worship service this morning. Uh, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. But you look at how how the Father is kind towards sinners in common grace, and then how He is kind to His own uh, in uh, Ephesians two seven. In the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness has been lavished upon us to overflowing in His Son. Just contemplate that that glorious reality of the gospel. And in 2 Timothy 2.28, we're told that a slave of the Lord must be kind to all. And so, if we recognize who He is and who we are in relation to Him, that, that uh, we're to exhibit kindness as He has exhibited to us. Goodness is another virtue. Moral and spiritual excellence shown in act of kindness you know, is, is how we relate to each other marked by goodness. kindness, patience. And uh, the final three are just general general conduct. Apostle Paul says that when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life He'll also begin producing faithfulness in you. That's loyalty, trustworthiness. I, I love uh, John's In John's revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christ is walking in the midst of His candlesticks who's intimately acquainted with the churches of Asia Minor, and He walks in Smyrna, we're told that Smyrna was faithful unto death. What a vivid picture, faithful unto death. A Christian is marked by loyalty, faithfulness, trustworthiness. Jesus gives this uh, account of a faithful servant in Luke 16. Uh, we we long for when our master returns to say to us, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant." You know, we're not we're not responsible for the results. I am so glad that God does not hold us accountable for results. You know, I was, I was in one of our, uh, uh, I was in a local megachurch recently that, uh, you know, look at, uh, it's very pragmatic, we're, we're into the results. You know, we, we here, we're in, a, we're in a small church, so we, we just want to be faithful. It is your longing desire, your aim, your purpose to be well-pleasing to Him, marked by faithfulness? A second in this final triad is, is gentleness. When the Spirit takes up residence in a life, He produces gentleness. This marks a person who's submissive to the Word. And you know, you want to know a, uh, a great situation to know whether somebody is. Uh, if somebody's gentle or not? How about in a uh, church discipline or church restoration situation, a sin issue? You, you look throughout the New Testament of when somebody is in need of loving correction with the truth. One of the v- Christian virtues that is to mark our interaction with each other is gentleness. Gentleness. For instance, since we're in Galatians, look at the next chapter, how Paul begins chapter 6. Brethren, he's talking to the family, family affairs, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one. That's our obligation. That's our responsibility. Do you love me enough to say you're off the path? You've gotten out of the way. Get back in line. Do you let me enough? If you're spiritual, you will. Restore in a spirit of... How are we supposed to do that? With a big billy club? Spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself so that you too won't be tempted. You'll insert here all of Jesus preaching on uh, hypercritical judgmentalism and looking at the telephone pole in our own eyes when we try to remove the speck from our brothers. It's so easy to magnify the sins of others and minimize our own sins. And Paul says, be cautious. You go and you're responsible to restore straggling, wandering sheep, brothers and sisters in Christ. But you better pay attention to your attitude. Is it one of gentleness? Looking to yourself, bearing one another's burdens, therefore fulfill, uh, thereby ful- fulfill the law of Christ. That's a mark of the Spirit. Paul talks to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25 about this same virtue of gentleness. In 1 Corinthians 4.21 and Ephesians 4.2, gentleness like our Master And he concludes with self-control. Self-control. This is many times used in in a uh, sexual connotation of more sensual passions than anger. In other words, a Christian, one that is marked by walking in step with with the Spirit, is not to be led by his impulses and desires to be mastered by them, Self-control is part of the divine nature that God grants through regeneration. So, you say, all right, is this an imperative command of what I am to do, or is this something that I just let go and let God? I don't think you see either one here. As we move to our fourth and final point, verses 24 to 25, Paul gives the solution to the sinful struggle. It's not an either or, but a both and. I like to look at progressive sanctification as the divine co-op. When Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation. And He follows that up with, it's God which works in you to will and to do so. Is it me or is it He? Yes, is the answer. Look at the provision for victory over sin. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. You see a great interaction here of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, again, not just in regards to salvation, but in regards to sanctification. Yes, we are to be led by the Spirit, and we are to reckon ourselves to be have, have crucified flesh. Now, we've already sprinkled through uh, this uh, two-week study about this divine co-op, us working through the Spirit to apply ourselves to the good works that manifest salvation. It comes from our demonstration of the crucified life. Our identity with Christ's death and being raised with Him, knowing that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same active source that empowers you and I who know Him. A person who's dead towards God can mask some of the earlier mentioned sins for time and to an extent, just to appear moral, but they're not motivated by holiness. There's no love for righteousness or love for Christ. As I've said before, I'll say again, not all change is sanctification. But there is the Holy Spirit necessity. The ever-quotable Tozer offers this. A.W. Tozer said, the Holy Spirit is not a luxury meant to make deluxe Christians as an illuminated frontispiece and a leather binding make a deluxe book. Or, as some preachers say, I love your fancy Shepherd's Conference Bible with the calf skin. Ooh, you know, it, it, it's, a nice, it's an added nicety, but any Bible is the Bible. What Toes are saying is, uh, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit's not an an add on option. You know, we, this new to us car that we've got has. Did you know they, they still have cars with the crank down windows, not the electric windows and whatnot? The Holy Spirit's not an add-on, is what Paul wants us to make sure. And, and Tozer, Tozer here says, the Spirit is an imperative necessity, only Spirit can do eternal deeds. So it's not, as we said last week, it's not a, a, a list of rules and regulations and lists, but we have an indwelling guide, the Spirit of God. And yet we are responsible to recognize we've been, the, the flesh has been crucified. We belong to Christ. This suggests a, a complete decisive act. So am I dead in Christ or am I not? Is there, is there, as I used to hear growing up in church, that uh, you've got uh, how many natures within? I, I was told you've got two natures, the, the old and the new, and uh, it's symbolized by the black dog and the white dog. They're fighting in eternal conflict with each other, and the one that you feed the most, uh, so if you feed uh, the, the, the spirit, you'll be spiritual, and if you feed the flesh, that is incongruous with what the Bible teaches us. The Bible said you have been crucified. Crucified. Romans 6.16, the old man was crucified. The cross rendered a fatal wound to the flesh. It is no longer your master. He just doesn't have the decency to fall down. He, he, he's like the old uh, the old beaten guy on the other side of the wall and he keeps on trying to put his ne- nose over the wall saying, I'm still here. No, that's where we're reminded in Scripture. Keep reminding yourself that You've been crucified. The old man is is dead. Any of you ever raised... Some of you raised chickens. we got new chickens next door in the neighbors. And uh, you ever uh, harvested your own chickens? You cut a chicken's head off, and what does he do? If you let him go, he goes and runs around. He doesn't have the decency to fall down. And what an apropos picture of this struggle in the flesh. The old man, He's dead doesn't have the decency. We still got the unredeemed humanness. And so, the reminder that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. So, we're responsible. And at the same time, He says, live by the Spirit. This is a statement of ideal, something that you and I are to attain. Make your profession a reality. Paul uh, gives a case in point. Lest this just be theological argumentation. Lest this remain academic and cerebral. He puts us in the laboratory of faith. What does this look like in the church? After he says the command, live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, notice how how the, the chapter ends. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. You say you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you love God. Let me see. Let me see your relationships. Let me see how it's worked out on the horizontal plane of experience. So, Paul gives this lesson and the laboratory of faith. He brings up a real situation. There was provoking and challenging of one another. Your churches, they are not just blown up by doctrinal issues. They are blown up by relational issues. Well, this person didn't talk with me when I walked right past him and you get your nose out of joint. or uh, what, you, you fill in the issue, the example. So Paul gives this, case, this test case. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Provoking. Procolumunai. Used only here in the New Testament. And it speaks of mutual challenges to combat or an athletic contest. In essence put up your dukes. Paul, on the pages of inspired scripture, helps point out that has no place in the life of the redeemed. This jockeying for position, this provoking spirit, we need to realize that we're at war. and We're at war together in the battle, zealous for each other's sanctification, to stir each other up to love and good deeds. So, Christian, there's two warring forces locked in mortal combat. As long as we remain in this life, we are never going to get past the struggle. We're always going to find ourselves with Paul in Romans 7. The freedom which we're called in Christ is always under attack, You're going to have your legalist on one side, or it's going to be dissipated through antinomianism on the other side. There is no law. There's no restraint. Biblical Christian liberty avoids such extremes. In sanctification, you and I are to apply ourselves to spiritual disciplines and to walk or live in conscious, humble dependence on God's power as we exhibit obedience to His Word. There's no spiritual technique. There's no great uh, complex formula, no second blessing that can propel you to a higher plane of Christian living. There is no victory for mere self-effort, only divine enablement through the Spirit. So, we, we hear in this passage the cadence of the drums. Walk in step with the Spirit. Here's what works of the flesh looks like. Here's what fruit of the Spirit's working looks like in your life. And as you examine your life, what, what drumbeat do you march to, the flesh or the Spirit? Is there tension? Is there conflict? You can know if your life is controlled by the Spirit by what verse characterizes your life. Is it, is it verse 19, deeds of the flesh? Or is it verse 22, fruit of the Spirit? If all you know is the first list, works of the flesh, those that practice such will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 21. I think uh, one of the Reformers captured this brilliantly as, as Paul talks about those that practice such. He, he speaks to Paul's intention. Calvin says, for, for who is there who does not labor under one or other of these sins in this previous list? I reply, Paul does not threaten that there shall be excluded from the kingdom of God all who have sinned, but all who remain impenitent. The saints themselves are heavily, bur- heavily burdened, but they return to the way. Because they do not surrender, they are not included in this catalog. All the threatenings of God's judgments call us to repentance, for which pardon is always ready with God. But if we continue obstinate, there will be a testimony against us. So what do you do when you find yourself committing one of those sins? Is there that holy hatred that, uh, that uh, repents? Would you pray with me? Father, as we think about salvation and even sanctification that's inextricably linked to it, that salvation is completely by grace apart from works and damnation is completely by works apart from grace. Lord, would you be so kind as to this Lord's day cause sinners to cry out for mercy. The Those that would gather with us that do not know the Savior would recognize that there's nothing they can do to merit Your favor, only to pray for You to have mercy to us sinners. Thank You, Lord, for beginning the work of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Pray that You would increase a consistent display of Your Spirit's fruit in our lives. Lord, what a catalog of what You do. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, these things that we can take no credit for. Yet you so graciously work in us to willing to do of your own good pleasure. Produce maturity, growth, Christlikeness in our individual lives and our corporate life as a church for the glory of our great shepherd in whose name we ask it. Amen.